plants outside and um, fixing the window above the door out east and the, uh, the gutter that was clogged up and spraying the, the ramp, which if you haven't noticed, the ramp's been sprayed. It looks like a, a new ramp um, and for painting the door. So all those that came out, thank you for helping with that. The many hands made it for light work. It was definitely a blessing uh, to do that. And if you haven't looked outside, you know, take a walk around the church and just see some of the new things that we have done. Before we dive into today's message, let's go to our Father in heaven once more for wisdom this morning. Father, we, we come to you. I'm in humility, Father, and if we don't, we ask that your spirit will humble us and that the spirit will convict us this morning as we hear your word. Uh, we desire wisdom. We desire truth this morning. We desire to glorify you and how we live, Father. And may you show us that this morning um, in your word. Uh, may we leave here encouraged, enriched, edified, um, equipped to do the work that you have set before us this week. We ask these things, Father, for your glory, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're back in Samuel. Uh, last week we, were, uh, we talked about the roles of men and women. The week before that we were um, in 1 Samuel 25, so we pick up today in 1 Samuel 26. Um, if you need a Bible, uh, we have Bibles in the back. You can go ahead and grab one, and you can keep it if you desire. Um, but our text today is uh, 1 Samuel 26. Um, in our chapter this morning, we're going to look at how God in his grace will hold back the fullness of his wrath by waking us up from our sinful slumber in order that we might have a chance to repent. We're going to work our way through the chapter, reading about it, um, reading about the second encounter in the wilderness between David and Saul, and then we'll consider what instruction that you and I might glean uh, from it that will ultimately give us hope, um, give us the ability to continue to endure in our faith and our walk with Christ. So we're going to start with the first uh, six verses of chapter 26. Again, this is 1 Samuel 26, and we'll read uh, verses 1 through 6, um, and it will be on the screen as well. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hekelah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hekelah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, with Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Joab's brother, Abishai, the son of Zeruah, Zeru I was doing so well until this one, Zeruah, and who will go down with me into the camp to Saul. And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So this event in chapter 26 is awfully similar to another one of which we just covered a few weeks ago in chapter 24, where Dave, David and, I'm calling him Dave now, like we're best friends, where David and Saul and, uh, came, met each other in the cave. In both events, it's the Ziphites who snitch on David. Both events, Saul has 3,000 chosen men. David has an opportunity to kill Saul once again. David is urged by his men in both events, um, and, he, and he's urged to do so with similar language. And in both cases, David refuses to kill Saul, and again, he uses uh, similar language as well. 
In both cases, David takes something of Saul, and in both, David confronts Saul rather than flees from Saul, and in both cases, Saul also confesses his sin. But as we will see, and as we see these similarities played out, we'll see that there are differences as well between the two. In these first six verses, we have the setting of our encounter, the setup of our event. In verses 1 through 3, Saul learns of David's whereabouts once again by the hand of the Ziphites. And once again, Saul takes with him 3,000 chosen men. Now, by chosen, uh, we're talking about men who have been tested, men who are experienced, men who probably are familiar with battle, familiar with tracking, familiar with pursuit, and who are also loyal to Saul. So these aren't just like 3,000 like random men. These are proven men of their purpose, of war, of fighting. So Saul ends up encamped on the hill of Hekelah near the road on the east side of Jeshimon. And David himself, he has his own spies, his own scouts, and he sends them out to find out where Saul is exactly. And he finds out, and at night, as we're going to read, he heads out to the encampment and sees the layout. And he sees Saul in the center. So Saul is surrounded by 3,000 men. So that's a That's a good amount of distance that you'd have to get through if you're going to get to Saul in the middle. And in the middle is um, Saul's cousin, um, Abner. Abner is the son of Ner, and we remember Ner from uh, 1 Samuel 9, right? That's Saul's uncle. Um, So Abner is the son of Ner, and he's also the general of the army. He's uh, Saul's bodyguard as well. So David asks Ahimelech, uh, the Hittite, and Abishai, which one wants to tag along with him on this mission? And we have no idea what Ahimelech's response is. All we know is that Abishai is the one who uh, is the one that volunteers for it. He's the one that the duty falls upon. Um, and so he is the one that is willing to go with uh, David on this bold mission. So let's go ahead and read verses 7 through 13 to read exactly how this mission goes down. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. So as David and Abishai, as they approach the camp, they see Saul there in the middle, surrounded by his men, asleep with his spear next to his head, stuck in the ground. And just as in the cave with the men there, Abishai, he sees this opportunity for David as this is clearly a divine appointment. You know, God has left Saul right there in the middle with a weapon that you can strike him with right next to his head. This is it. But David, he counters with the same reasoning as before. He's not going to touch the Lord's anointed. Uh, and now, again, this is not, um, I've mentioned this in chapter 24. I'm not going to go into great detail. But this is not a case or, or a text, a proof text to be used to say pastors are untouchable. Pastors are not the Lord's anointed in this way. Um, pastors are 
were the priesthood of believers. Pastors are to be held accountable. So uh, if you want more information on that and you didn't listen to chapter 24, listen to chapter 24. Um, anyway, so David said, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. Um, and this is also a lesson that he's probably, it's probably fresh in his head. Remember in chapter 25, uh, his, his now wife, Abigail, taught him that lesson. Hey, vengeance belongs to the Lord. Let not the, the blood guilt fall on you. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Trust in the Lord to do the work to deliver you. Uh, so, um, and that was the case involving Abigail's ex-husband, uh, Nabal, in chapter 25. So, so David refuses to strike down Saul once again. Instead, David takes a spear and a jar of water and goes to the other side of the camp. And if you think about it, that makes sense, right? If you're creeping through a camp at night and you get to the middle, it makes more sense to keep going straight rather than turning around and following your tracks back, right? Because if you're sleeping and somebody walks by you and you hear something, you might kind of wake up, but not fully wake up. But they walk by you a second time, then you might wake up. So David, it just makes sense that he goes straight through the camp to uh, the other side. So he goes to the other side of the camp. And now let's go ahead and read and see what he does once he reaches the other side of the camp with the spear and the jar. And let's see how Saul and Abner react. Verses 14 through the end uh, to verse 25. David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you and who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servants. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord by saying, Go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who haunt, hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things, and you will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. So David, he wakes the army, and does so by mocking Abner. Abner failed at his duty to guard Saul, to protect Saul. And so he's mocking Abner, and doing so, Saul recognizes this voice of David, and he asks, is this David? And he acknowledges that it's David. David shows himself, says, it is I. 
And we have a similar exchange between Saul and David here that we do in chapter 24, though chapter 24 is it's much more um, robust. So this one is, is a shorter exchange. David pleads his case. Saul admits his mistake, confesses his sin. David adds to his innocence by showing how he spared Saul once again, by showing how close he got by holding up the water jar and the spear. Remember, Saul's spear is like Saul's blankie, right? He's, it's always in his possession. He threw it at Jonathan. He had it with him under the tree when he was accusing the Benjamite clan of betraying him and not being loyal. So he always has the spear next to him. It's his sense of security. He, it's, it's precious. It's his precious to him, right? And so David has his precious spear. Um, and so Saul realizes how exposed he was to David. So David shows this innocence, and then he prays to God that God will remember his actions, his righteous actions, his faithfulness, and that in doing so will deliver David from any tribulation. So Saul blesses David in this and sends him on his way, and Saul returns to his place. So what's the lesson here for us today? What are we to learn from this? As much as the words and actions of David were an act of grace towards Saul, we must understand that God does the same for us. Judgment is coming for Saul, but it, it's not this night. It's not for him, not yet. And it was another opportunity granted to Saul to repent. Judgment for you and I, it is coming, but it's not yet. You and I, we still, we're still breathing, I think, most of us, right? You look like you're breathing. So we still have an opportunity to repent. So what we see here is a warning, a call to wake up, a call to rise from our slumber of ignorance, arrogance, and selfish living. So David here, he's able to move through this camp of 3,000 experienced men untouched, ultimately because God had put them into a deep sleep. David could have slain all of them if he wanted to, at the very least Saul, but he doesn't. Saul is well-deserving of death, and we know that God has already judged Saul in regard to his kingship and determined that the kingdom is to be handed over to uh, David. So that judgment has already been passed, and David is waiting for that to come to fruition. But there's a greater judgment that is going to be awaiting Saul if he does not repent. But David is going to allow God to handle the details of the passing of the kingdom uh, to him, so he stays out of being used as an instrument by God in that regard. Rather, David, he wakes the camp up. And he wakes the camp. He doesn't have to wake the camp up. He could have just taken the spear in the jar, but he doesn't. He wakes the camp up, specifically Abner and Saul. And by doing so, like in chapter 24, it's almost as if he's pleading with Saul, hey, you need to repent. You need to confess your sin and repent of your actions. What you're doing is not holy. It is not just, and you know it. And it's, it's David is trying to save the life, try to save the soul of Saul. And Saul, as he usually does, he represents the, the world for us, the unbeliever. See, he puts his trust in, in the world, right? In his credentials as king, as a mighty warrior. His spear is by his side. He has his 3,000 chosen men surrounding him. He trusts in his power and wealth as king. He's trusting his cousin, his bodyguard, his general Abner, the position that David himself should have been, fill, been uh, fulfilling, but it's Abner. And, and so Saul, he's sleeping quietly because he's trusting in these things to protect him. 
But none of these things help Saul. None of these things keep Saul from being exposed to the hand of God, to be exposed to the hand of David. He was still vulnerable, and he was still ultimately not in control of his own life. It's upon this realization when confronted by David and how exposed Saul was to his perceived enemy, this is what humbles him and this is what leads him to confess the sin. But once again, as in other times, because Saul, he's good at confessing sins, but he's bad at repenting of them. It's almost like as we've read through Samuel, he's confessing one sin after another, and he, it's almost like he knows exactly what to say and how to bless the one that he sinned against, but he, he doesn't know how to repent. And David knows this. We've seen this. David doesn't trust Saul when he says, hey, no harm's going to come to you. David never actually goes back to Saul. He doesn't want another spear thrown at him. So Saul's good at confessing his sins, but he's not good at repenting from them. We must be careful that we do not sleep like Saul, trusting in the powers of this world to keep us safe, or trusting in our own powers, in our own abilities, in our own circumstance to guard us, to extend our life, to give us another day. Maybe we trust in modern medicine, or we trust in our wealth that we'll never be poor and we'll always have money to provide for ourselves. Or maybe it's we trust in our friends, our families, or even our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's not that we can't trust in our brothers and sisters in Christ, but we can't trust them like we can trust God. You and I, we're going to fail each other at some point. I am going to disappoint you if I haven't already. Um, and if I have, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. And it's probably going to happen again. It's not like I do it intentional, but I am human. I am fallible. God is not. We can trust God in a way that we cannot trust anyone else in this world, saved or unsaved, and that's ultimately where our trust should be. If we find ourselves able to sleep at night because we put our trust in the, in the things of man, that we, we sleep at night because, like, boy, I live in America, this government is, is great, Trump is, is president, um, whatever the reason may be, and when we sleep at night because of those things, God, if he's gracious to us, he will wake us from that slumber. He will wake us from that sleep and warn us, hey, don't trust in these things. You need to trust in me. Just as David did to Saul. David woke Saul up to give him another opportunity to repent and to put his trust in God. And if we look around in America, God is clearly doing this right now. I mean, just look at the havoc that COVID-19 and the epic failure of our, mod uh, our modern medical system has brought within this nation. The fear it has caused, the anxiety that has been seen, exhibited throughout the country. It's as if for the first time in America that the average American is realizing, I can't control everything. There are just some things in life that are outside of my control. And that ultimately, only God can control it. Many people will ask for prayers. Many will even go to God in prayer. They'll ask for deliverance, for answers, for mercy. But most will never truly acknowledge God. They just want deliverance. Just Saul, they'll, they'll confess their sins, but they will never repent of them. Most will never heed the warning that judgment is coming, that ultimately death is at the door. When awakened by the reality of death, the reality of things we cannot control, we must recognize that if we are still breathing, we have been given a moment of grace by God to ponder our reality, to consider if, you had, if COVID-19 was, was bad, and some people think, think it is, right? If, you, if, if you're 
concern about COVID-19 getting your, or cancer or, or whatever, you're concerned about death, it causes us to ponder in whom we place our trust for one, and it also causes us to ponder why are we living? Why am I here? Why do I breathe? Why do we exist? Do we ultimately live for ourselves or for someone or something else? Are we alive simply by random chance? Think about that. Like if, you, if, you're, when de- if, if death has never knocked on your door, well, you're missing out. Um, I don't know how to say this, but there's wisdom in the house of mourning. There is wisdom in recognizing that your life is finite, that death is coming, that you, you will die, because it causes you, you, you cannot help but to ponder why you exist and why you're here, because you know that sooner or later, that clock of your heart is going to stop ticking, and it's not going to tick anymore, and you've got to figure out, well, what am I doing with my time? So you, you ask yourselves, are we alive simply by random chance? Is this all because Big Bang, random explosion, out of nothing, something came on its own, and then life happened? A single-cell organism, which in itself, the mathematical probability for a single-cell organism is astronomical. And if, if you're looking for a book on this, consider um, Counting to God. It's by Douglas L. He's an astrophysicist mathematician. Um, but he is a, he's not a Christian, so you've got to be careful of that. He, he is a theist. So he does believe in a creator um, just simply because of the numbers. The mathematical probability of just a single-cell organism existing is, is it's massive. You can't really wrap your head around it. And then to go beyond that, it's just one mathematical improbability followed by another. It just, the, the math, the science points to a creator. So if there is a creator, then the question becomes, did he create all things with order and purpose except mankind? I mean, look at nature. There's order. There's purpose. We have the law of physics, the law of gravity, right? We, we have these laws that are set. that they, they don't, They're not random. So every, everything has purpose except mankind. Or is that not true? Is God truly silent? Is the creator just a silent God up there, or has he spoken? Romans 1.20, Paul says, For his, that's God's, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world into things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Creation, just like just what I've talked about, when you look at creation, when we consider all the wonders, all the worlds that God has made, Right? How great thou art? Like, how can we not look at that and be like, God's in it. His eternal power, his, his invisible attributes, they are there. But if his existence is obvious, then what is the consequence of ignoring God? Let's read the whole passage of Romans 1.18-32. And as I read this passage, consider the things going on in America today. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, hearty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now notice the judgment here in this passage. The judgment itself isn't natural disaster. It isn't the pandemic, though God can use those things. But here in Romans 1, the judgment itself is actual sinful living. The turning over mankind to its own desires, giving humanity what it desires, giving society what it desires, the freedom to live according to its nature, the freedom of self rule, to live as Saul lived, independent of God, fully trusting in himself, making monuments like he did in Carmel for himself rather to God. So just take a look at America right now. Look at what we as a nation celebrate. All right, we have Pride Month, LGBTQ, right? We celebrate, we boast in the homosexuality and in that lifestyle. Look at the things that we approve of, we have citizens that applaud the ambush of two deputies in L.A. We have people blocking the entrance of an emergency room and praying for death to come upon these deputies, praying for murder to happen. Look at the shows, the movies, and documentaries that we enjoy watching, the ones that are full of evil, unrighteousness, slander, gossip, like Keeping Up with the Kardashians, which, thank God, is, is ending. But there's other shows like it that fill um, the airwaves. All the sexual immorality that exists on TV, example, cuties, you know, if you haven't heard of it, good. Um, that's on Netflix. Again, consider Romans 1.32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Think of the protests and the riots, the actions that are being encouraged by those engaging in the Black Lives Matter organization. Think of what is being protested. A man armed with a knife with a history of stabbing people who got shot by police after he was tased by police while he had a knife in his hand, while he was threatening other people with the knife, who physically resisted arrest while threatening others with the knife in his hand, gets shot, dies, and people protest that, saying it was unnecessary. People protested that, that action, and though as we as society know that people who practice such things against other people deserve death, we actually approve of their behavior. We celebrate it. 
this type of behavior, this is the judgment for this age. And, you know, if we're honest here, if we went five years ago or even 10, 20 years ago, I'm sure I could find other events in America, uh, current events that I could also point to as God's warning. Perhaps they are escalating, yes, and I think they become more and more evident um, as judgment draws near, um, and we should be um, aware of that. But we must not be smug either in this. We must realize that um, we who are, we must not think, excuse me, that we are saved or that we are righteous simply because we don't act like they do. We must not think that we're, God is good with us because we're not acting like they are acting. Consider Paul's words as he continues this line of thought in Romans 2 and verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? It's easy to look at society and consider how they are destined for judgment, but we must not presume we ourselves are better in the eyes of God. Continuing on in verse 4, do you presume or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So God might not have handed us over already to that depravity. It's because he wants us to repent. You and I, we, we're slanderers, we're gossipers. And remember, you don't have to engage in the action to be guilty of the action. It starts here, the moment you think it. Think about how you've looked at some of these protesters and how you've felt towards them, what you've wished upon them, how maybe it's made you angry, or maybe you have felt hatred towards the Black Lives Matter organization. What camp does that put you in, ultimately? If you have hatred towards your brother, so we must not think that we are innocent in this matter. Rather, we need to look at what's going on and view this judgment as a wake-up call, his patience as an opportunity to repent, as an act of discipline, an act of grace, to get us to realize we live in a world that is fallen, that is sinful, and that is blind to its own deeds. It's the only way to explain what's going on, I think, in America. is this blind, the blind leading the blind people who are still sleeping in the, in, in the darkness of the world. They just cannot see what they are doing until God's grace wakes them up from that. And we have to recognize that we live in a world that we cannot control, no matter what our wealth is, no matter how healthy we are, no matter what medical technology we have at our hands, you're still not in control. There's only so much we can control. Death is still coming. One way or the other, death is coming. If death doesn't come, then Jesus comes. Right? So judgment's coming. So we, we all, we must hear the shout from God. We must awake as Abner and Saul, as they awoke from their sleep when David shouted out to them. But unlike Abner and Saul, we must not only acknowledge our sins, we must turn from them and change our ways and follow Christ. Saul, what he should have done when he confessed his sins, should have been like, the, king, the kingdom's yours. Here's my crown. Take it. Like, that would have been a good act of repentance for Saul. Like, God said, this kingdom isn't mine anymore. Rather than holding on to it, he should have been like, take it. And may, may Yahweh have mercy on my life for what I've done. Take the kingdom, because I know you've been anointed. I know God's going to give it to you. But he doesn't do that. He continues to cling to his rule. He continues to cling to his autonomy. He continues to cling to how he wants to live. He doesn't truly, truly feel the, the, the reality of the situation. He just wants deliverance from that moment. 
And so will the world. The world will continue to review, re- refuse to accept Christ as king, despite, I mean, the wildfires, the earthquakes, the, the hurricanes, the natural disasters, the pandemic. I mean, and this is just on, this is on a large scale, right? But you and I, we have moments in our own lives as individuals where God warns us. The death of a loved one, a cancer diagnosis, the loss of a job, a car accident. We're, God's constantly putting things in our lives to say, hey, you need to look up more. Stop looking at your navel and start looking up at me. You need to trust in me. So just as Saul was unable to stop, so is the world is unable to stop Christ from reigning. But where Saul and the world fails, you and I do not need to. Paul in Ephesians 5.14 says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. He goes on in verses 15-21, through 21, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days, they are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We have to be careful of the worldviews that we adopt. Just don't get behind any um, trending hashtag. You need to understand the organizations that you claim to support and what their motives and what their agendas are. Be wise in what the Lord's will is and follow that, because the days are evil. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That happens only when the church gathers in person. Church, this is biblical text right here. Church is essential. Without the church gathering in person, we cannot fulfill that. You cannot do this online. You just can't. Online's good for a season. But sooner or later, we have to. Even those of you who are home right now, sooner or later, you have to come out. We, we cannot do this online. We have to do this in person. It's essential. It's commanded. And sooner or later, we have to trust in God. We can't just sit back. I get it for a season. But you have to ask, pray about it, consider it. How long is the season? How long is it? I mean, let the Spirit of God guide you and have peace in it. Please, I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to guilt you to come in here. I just want you to wrestle with it faithfully with Scripture. I want you to wrestle it with it faithfully with God because there are different situations for everyone, right? Wrestle with it, let the Spirit guide you, and be honest with yourself. Because in order for us to do what Paul says here and being awoken by Christ and walking in the light, you have to do this in person. So sooner or later, we have to all come back. When we hear the shout from the son of David, we have to trust in him. When he makes it plain to us that he is our Lord and Savior, when he wakes us up from our sleep, that ultimately he is the one who made all things and not anything that was made was made without him. He ultimately is the author of, of life. And because he's the author of life, he's creative of all things, he's the one that gives us purpose. He is why we live and breathe and why we exist. God, our God, he is obvious in his creation, but he has not remained quiet. He is not some silent, impersonal God. He has shouted. The son of David took on flesh, <clears throat> dwelt among us, and when he was taken outside the camp, outside of the city, 
where he took a spear in his side and where he himself shouted and gave up his last, why did he do all of that? So that we may awaken from our slumber, so that we may be regenerated, so that the blindness of our eyes would be given sight and that we may be forgiven. And as such, we could put our trust in him. And we realize there's a wrath from God that's coming and he has bore the brunt of that wrath, all of that wrath for those who call upon his name and hear his shout and confess and repent of their sins. But those who hear the shout and ignore him, the same wrath that was given to Jesus will be given to him and they will be given to them by the hand of Jesus. And when we do this, we have a peace to know, a peace with God a shalom that is offered to all who hear the shout on, cross, on the cross and repent of the sins and follow after Jesus. So therefore, let us clean off our beds. Let us cast away the idols in our hearts, the sins of our desires. Let us change our sheets and sanctify ourselves with confession and repentance in the washing of his word. Let us awaken so that the light of Christ may shine on us and we may walk in his spirit so that when we lay our heads down at night to sleep, we may ultimately sleep in righteousness, as David was able to walk away from that camp, remaining faithful to our groom, and not allowing ourselves to trust anyone or anything else other than our Lord and Savior. We must not sleep at night with a spear next to our head, thinking this is my deliverance. It's not that you can't have a spear. You can have a spear. It's fine. You can have your blankie, but it's not your ultimate source of security. It could be a tool, yes, but it's not the source of your salvation. It's not your source of deliverance. You, you don't need that spear. If you do, you, we need to work on that. We need to get you to detach from that spear, from that blankie. We need you to learn to cast your anxiety, your fears upon God and to trust in him. And maybe what you need is that wake-up call. But don't wait for that near-death experience because it might not be a near-death experience. It might be a death experience. Don't wait for that moment. Don't wait for that heart attack. Don't, don't wait for that cancer diagnosis. Don't wait for that car accident. Don't wait for that out-of-the-blue moment that wakes you up. You have the Word of God right now. You're hearing the shout right now. You, you're hearing about Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins right now. This is, this is it. This is your moment. If you die in, in the next moment that follows this moment, that follows this moment, that's on, and you haven't confessed and accepted your sin, you know, repented of your sins, that's on you. God, he's speaking to you right now. Now is your moment. And the world, God has made it plain through creation and through his judgment, through, through the works of sin in this world. He's made it plain that the judgment is coming, and it has come, but the full wrath of God right now, God's, you might not think so, but God's hand of grace is still upon us. As long as we're breathing, and we haven't been judged finally, God's hand of grace is upon us. You can say how, how it doesn't matter how bad it gets, World War III can start, God's grace is still upon us, because his judgment, his wrath, when he brings it full force, and he returns his full glory, whatever suffering that can happen in this world, not, that's not going to compare to awaits those who will suffer the wrath and judgment of God. So when God sends that judgment to us as a wake-up call, it's an act of mercy. As David tried to save Saul's life, God does the same for us. 
So let us trust him. And so we remind ourselves, those of us who do know Christ, those of us who do lay our heads at night fully trusting in God, and we do our best to get that full sleep, recognizing that we have that shalom, that peace with God, that there's no threat of hostility from him because we have been made right with him. We're reminded of this when we go to communion. And so at this time, we're going to do communion. Let me uh, go ahead and pray for the elements, um, and then I'll give the instructions. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace this morning. Thank you for your word. You know our hearts, Father. You know um, where we stand with you. Um, Some of us, we might look like we're with you, but you know if we are or not. And for those who play the game but don't give their hearts to you, may this be the warning, Father. May they hear your words. May your spirit right now take that heart and give them a new heart, a clean heart, a righteous heart, a pure one. Uh, Give them a new uh, creation. Help them to see that, uh, cause their eyes to see the truth of the gospel. And maybe people have just never given you Uh, a fair shake and having given you full thoughts may they look at not just our society but the world the depravity the evil that exists in it the the reality of death the reality that life is brief it is but a vapor and may they ponder the questions of life and in that father may they find truth may they find your son may they go to your word may what has been spoken here this morning Touch their souls, not by the power of man or what I have said, but purely by the power of the Spirit in your word. May we all be washed by the word here this morning as your Spirit dwells within us. May we fill ourselves with that Spirit. May we submit ourselves to the Spirit and walk in the light of the truth. May we awake from our own sleep. If, if we've been holding on to a sin or holding on to an idol, Father, tear it from us. Guide us into repentance. Bring us uh, unto a a judgment that is one of discipline, one of correction. Help us not continue to live these these lives of lies and hypocrisy, but help us to walk uh, fully in righteousness and in faithfulness, Um, and that you will see that righteousness and faithfulness. And as David prayed, that we would be delivered from tribulation but Father, help us recognize that ultimately our peace isn't from this world. It's, it's, it's from the wrath, from your wrath, and from your judgment, from your holy and perfect judgment. We are fully deserving of it, Father. It's only by your mercy, by your grace, that we can even approach you like this because of the work of your Son. And Father, as we enter into communion here this morning, as we come to the Lord's table, the table that your son has set out for us, the the table that your son calls us to to come to so that we may be reminded of the promises of the gospel, that we may reflect on his life, that he lived in perfect obedience, the blood that he shed on the cross for our sins, Father. We thank you for sending him. We thank you that he was obedient to your will, that that, that all he cared about was glorifying you and, and obeying your will and in that we are benefactors. We, 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 we are able to eat the fruit of that tree of his labor. We thank you for that grace and mercy. And we thank you for the promise that he has given us, that he will return. And that one day when he does return, he's going to return in the full glory. The full glory of God and 
with all of his angels and he's going to judge the righteous. He's going to judge the wicked father. But we know that those of us who call upon his name, we will be declared righteous, declared justified by his blood. So as we come this morning, Father, bless the cracker, bless the juice. May the, the taste linger in our mouths, not just for a few moments, but all week until we come to the table again. And may that taste guide us to your word. May it guide us to our knees in, in prayer. May it help us to take captive of every thought when evil and, and slanderous thoughts enter into our minds, Father. And, and when our sin creeps in, may that taste, may our tongue actually guide us back to your truth and remind us of the gospel, the promises that you've given us. Help us to stay awake. Help us not to fall asleep to the ways of this world. Help us to put into practice the commands of Scripture. We, we need this help, Father. We, we need your Spirit to do this for us. We, we groan mightily day in and day out, especially this year, Father. There is much suffering going on. You know our groans, and we don't always have words, but the Spirit intercedes for us, Father. And your Son, he, He's at your right hand, interceding as well. We thank you for the triune nature of you. We thank you that all three of you work for us, and that we do have that one mediator, Jesus Christ. Father, we ask all these things for your glory, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so at this time, we're going to do communion, open table here at Hope, meaning if you are a believer...